peace. Peace, it's something we all want, and yet it is something that we feel we, we very rarely have. I think that it is uh, something that we feel we very rarely have because so often we, we don't know or we forget uh, where it comes from. It, it doesn't come from a state of mind. We can't just think happy thoughts and suddenly have peace because after we have thought those thoughts, other thoughts kind of come back into our minds. It doesn't come from the absence of, of other people, like we, we need uh, some people to kind of go away from us. Um, because quite honestly, it, it doesn't come from the absence of other people, because sometimes we're, we're actually the problem. Um, it doesn't come from being in a particular place. We can't go to a beach or to a mountain range or to a beautiful river and, and get peace. Because the minute you leave that place, you, you've left your, your source of, of peace. If we can call those places sources of peace. This morning, I want us to be certain of the source of grace and peace. This is something we need to know. We need to know it each and every day. It's something I wish that I remembered a couple of weeks ago um, when, I, when I had trouble sleeping at night. I received an email uh, from a friend about 10.27 p.m. And uh, that correspondence, it just bothered me. It bothered me and bothered me and bothered me. And to say the least, I did not have a peaceful night of sleep. Um, and that almost never happens to me. Um, I, I, I don't know for certain, but, but I, I, I think I may have had or may have slept a little better uh, if I remembered the source of peace. We need to know the source of peace because we need to draw on that source when we go through life, when we go through difficult times, we need to draw on that source when we go through a drought. Uh, now, normally, I take us straight to the text that we're going to study together. Um, but this morning, before we go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, I want to take us to the book of Jeremiah. Specifically, I want to take us to Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 7 to 8. Now, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 645. Uh, if you are not using one of the Bibles provided, I don't know what page number that's on. Uh, but it's in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17. Um, I, I want to draw your attention to this image that Jeremiah uses. And I, I hope that this image will be helpful to you, helpful to us. And I want us to keep it in mind as we turn to study Paul's letter. Jeremiah, you know, as a prophet, he had the peculiar responsibility of prophesying to the people of Judah. It was his responsibility to tell the people of Judah that God was going to judge them. That was Jeremiah's mission. God was going to judge them by sending the Babylonians to conquer them and destroy the temple. Having, having that call is, is a strange call for Jeremiah. Jeremiah, he, he made sure to clarify to the people of Israel that God was going to, to judge them because they did not seek the Lord with all of their hearts. 
Having a peace, having peace, as, as I trust we'll see, is a matter of having your heart drawing and depending upon the right source, the only source of peace. In Jeremiah 17, the prophet gives the people of Judah an image of what it looks like to depend upon the Lord, to trust him. So, so read Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8 now. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Do you see what Jeremiah is saying? Here is a man, a tree, is the image he uses, a tree not merely surviving, it's not merely surviving in a drought, but bearing fruit. Why do his leaves remain green? And why does he not cease to bear fruit in the midst of that cursed condition? How can the people of Judah, for, for Jeremiah's audience, how can the people of Judah be faithful even when the Babylonians are invading their lands to take them away to exile? This tree, this man, is not receiving rain from above. The, the weather, the circumstances have changed. By his roots, he is drawing and depending upon an unending water source. His trust is the Lord. So we can see there in verse 7. Here, here's the truth. Sometimes the Lord allows droughts in our lives. When he does, he makes us depend upon him. Sometimes the Lord allows violent storms to pass through our lives. And what he does, he teaches us that we need to be rooted in him. So that we're not toppled over by a violent wind. Jesus is the source of grace and peace. That's where we're going this morning. That's what I want us to think about as we turn to study the conclusion of Paul's letter. Jesus is the source of grace and peace. And you need to be aware of this. More than that. You need to draw and depend upon him now. Whatever season you're in, whether there is a downpour of blessing in your life or whether there is a drought of apparent curse, we need to be clinging to Jesus, to Him. Our hearts need to be set on Him. How else are we going to be green and bear fruit when the drought of disease or cancer comes? How else are we going to survive the loss of a child? How else do you think Horatio Spafford could, could write those words that we sang just a few minutes ago? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Do you realize those words were penned by a man who had lost his four daughters at sea? How are we going to endure apart from Jesus? How are we going to endure when our spouse wants nothing to do with us? 
how are we going to persevere when all we want is to be married? How are we going to keep going when we're depressed? Our only hope is to draw upon the one who is in himself the prince of peace. Our only hope is to depend upon the one who is full of grace and truth. Our only hope is Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to think about this morning as we turn to study 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. So go ahead and turn there now. Turn back there if you already turned there before. Turn back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 990. 990. And while you're turning there, I want to I give a little bit of background on Paul's letter. And I want to summarize the whole of Paul's letter. Uh, because I think that Paul means to envelop or enfold all that he has said in this letter in his conclusion. Um, from the very beginning of the Bible, we learn that, that God sought to establish a kingdom for his beloved son. And that he has done so through sending Jesus Christ to conquer sin and death by his cross and resurrection. After Jesus was raised from the grave, he commissioned men, like the Apostle Paul, to go and preach and teach the truth about his reign over the whole earth. When the gospel was preached, when this good news of Jesus' cross and resurrection was preached, churches, that is embassies or outposts of Jesus' heavenly kingdom, were established on earth. This is what happened in the city of Thessalonica. Paul preached the gospel, and a church, an embassy, an outpost of heaven was established there. Men and women turned from their sins. They trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation. They submitted their lives to His rule and reign. And so a local church was established. Sadly, Paul and the Christians in Thessalonica, they faced persecution and hostilities from those who did not believe the good news about Jesus. And so Paul was forced to leave town. Shortly after Paul left, he began writing letters to this church in Thessalonica. We have two of those letters. We've been studying Paul's second letter to the church in Thessalonica. Paul opened this letter by reminding the Thessalonians of the grace and peace that they know through God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Paul's going to end the letter too. Paul even shared with the Thessalonians his joy in the fact that they were giving evidence of their faith in God. He encouraged them to keep believing, to keep persevering in the face of hardship. That meant not being alarmed by some false teaching that had turned up in the city and in their church. People were falsely teaching that Jesus had already come back. And so Paul urged them to reject that false teaching and to stand firm the teaching that had been handed down to them through Paul. He even expressed his confidence that they would obtain the glory that God had ordained for them. And having prayed for them, Paul encouraged them to persist in the diligent work, in, in diligent work until the Lord Jesus Christ returned. That's essentially what Paul said and communicated through this letter. And now let's take a look at how Paul concludes it. Read 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. Now, may the Lord of peace himself Give you peace at all times, in every way. The Lord be with you all. 
I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. We're going to study this closing portion of Paul's letter in three sections under three headings. The gift of peace, right there in verse 16, the gift of peace, the genuine greeting in verse 17, and the grace of Jesus, that's verse 18. Uh, Like I said, all three of these verses touch on, summarize, and apply to the letter as a whole. And I'll give you those three points as we're kind of working our way through the text. The conclusion of Paul's letter envelops and embodies the content of its letter. So let's begin with our first point, the gift of peace. As we do, look at, look at verse 16. Read verse 16 again. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, in every way. The Lord be with you all. Verse 16, it's bland and beautiful. It is bland only in the sense that it takes the form of a standard prayer in the first century. The way that Paul structures his prayers is pretty standard, but the language, the language that Paul uses in his prayers, pretty unique. Nowhere else in the New Testament do we get this designation, Lord of Peace. In the conclusion of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, we get the designation, God of Peace. That's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. We also get that designation, God of Peace, at the end of the letter of Hebrews in 13, 20. But only here do we get the designation Lord of Peace. Its occurrence is unique, and what it communicates is unique. You see, Paul normally applies that title, Lord, to Jesus. So just look at verse 18 there. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. In Paul's writings, that's who he's referring to. He's referring to Jesus uh, most, uh, most often when he's applying the title Lord. I think that's who he's referring to here. And applying the title Lord to Jesus was an astounding claim in the first century. You see, Caesar, he was Lord. He was the ruler. But here we have a Christian saying, well, actually, Jesus is Lord. He is the author and authority over all things. And, and this wasn't just some creative idea that Paul came up with. I, mean, I think I'll just call Jesus Lord to teach something about him. No, it wasn't even a creative idea of doubting Thomas when he finally saw Jesus after the resurrection from the dead and confessed Jesus was my Lord and my God. This was what Jesus said about himself during the course of his teaching ministry. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus claimed and proved his lordship by quoting from Psalm 110. There, Jesus suggested that David saw him, saw Jesus as the Lord of all. This title draws out both Jesus' divinity and his authority. Jesus is Lord. He he rules over all. He controls all things. This should be enough to remind us that since the Lord Jesus is guiding our lives and this world to its glorious goal, we can have peace. But Paul goes on for our benefit, and he goes one step further. Paul doesn't merely call Jesus Lord. Jesus, Paul tells us, is the Lord of peace. 
We, we almost have an instinctive sense of what peace is, what peace feels like, even if we don't have peace. We kind of lurch toward it. I know it's kind of in that direction. That's what I want to feel. Peace is, is sometimes, um, it's the, sometimes it's described as the absence of conflict and unrest, but I think it's something more, too. It's not merely the absence of conflict or unrest. It also means that you have something, or, or I think you have someone, that you have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Peace is both the absence of conflict and the presence of Christ. And, and who wants conflict or unrest in their lives? As human beings, we, we naturally desire peace. And that should tell us something, shouldn't it? Peace doesn't rule the world. It doesn't rule our lives, but we want it to. So, so how did the world get this way? How is Jesus the Lord of peace? Well, Jesus is the Lord of peace in several ways. Remember that lordship is tied to rule and authority. So notice that Paul says Jesus has a power and authority to give peace. Verse 16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. Jesus may give peace as a gift, a heavenly gift, and he may do so because he has secured peace between God and his people. You see, conflict and unrest in our world ultimately stems from humanity's conflict with God. The conflict that is carried out on a, on a horizontal level between relationships that we have in this world or, or nations, it ultimately stems, grows out of the conflict that exists on a vertical level. The conflict between God and man. The Bible tells us that there is so little peace in this world and so much conflict and unrest because we have gone to war with God. And do you know, do you want to know why humans go to war with one another? It's because they have gone to war with God. God created the world beautiful, perfect, good, and at peace. He created man in his own image and, and placed them in a beautiful garden. This garden, this relationships in the garden first reflected peace. God was at peace with man. The first man and the first woman perfectly reflected the righteousness and holiness of God until one day they decided to rebel against him. God told them that they may eat of the fruit of every tree in the Garden of Eden except one. God promised them life and peace if they would keep his command. He also promised them death, conflict, and unrest should they rebel and disobey. And sadly, the serpent persuaded Adam and Eve that neither God nor his commands were good. So they rebelled against God's good commands. And in taking the fruit from the forbidden tree... They, in effect, by their actions, declared war against God. Taking that fruit marked the cessation of peace, the end of peace between God and man. They decided they were no longer going to live under God's commands, but instead they were going to live their own way rather than God's way. And that is what sin is. At its heart, it is rebellion and warfare against God. It is where God's rule is refused and self-rule is instituted. And in the day that Adam sinned, an attempt was made to create 
a new kingdom opposite and opposed to God. How could this new kingdom not be marked by conflict or unrest in its very essence? For that is how it began. It is no surprise that some of Adam's first words after the fall show an internal conflict in this newly created kingdom. He blamed Eve for his failure to follow God. A sure sign of conflict is blame shifting. Peace had departed that first human relationship the moment that peace with God was broken. Like Adam, we have all sinned against God. We have all followed in His footsteps and decided to live our own way rather than God's way. Our lives and our relationships and our conflict with others reveal that we do not naturally have peace with God. And in order for peace to be restored, Jesus had to become the Lord of peace. Jesus had to become the one who would reconcile hostile humanity to a holy God. And that is what Jesus did. And it is how He became the Lord of peace. The eternal Son of God became man. God the Son took on flesh. Jesus lived the perfect life of perfect peace with God the Father by completely obeying His commands. He lived a, a sinless life, completely and fully obeying every one of God's good commands. And yet Jesus died on the cross. He had to. For that was the price of sin. God told Adam in the Garden of Eden that the wages, the payment and punishment due to sin was death. And so on the cross, Jesus was paid for sinners like you and me. Jesus took the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those who had ever turned from their sins and put their faith in Him. Jesus substituted Himself for sinners and took their punishment. He bore in His body on the tree, as the Apostle Peter says, the eternal wrath of God. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight and that Jesus had secured peace with God. Friends, Jesus says, Come and take refuge in Me. Come and believe that I lived for you and died for you and was raised from the grave for you. Believe that punishment has been paid for your sin. That God is no longer angry at you and at you for, for your sin. And that you now have peace with Him because of what Christ has done. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, let me urge you to turn from your sins and to come to Jesus in faith so that you may receive the gift of peace with God. The gift that only Jesus can give because He and He alone is the Lord of peace. And if you want to know more about what it means to put your faith in Jesus, to have peace with God through Him, then talk with a friend or the family member that you came here with this morning. Come and find me at the door after the service or another elder will be standing at this door. We'd love to talk to you about the good news that Jesus has secured peace with God on behalf of sinners. Paul certainly has all of this in view when he pens the words that Jesus is the Lord of peace. And he has even more too. Paul's vision of peace, if you noticed in verse 16, is comprehensive. Just look at the end of that sentence. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. It's a comprehensive prayer for peace, is it not? It's such a wonderfully appropriate prayer for the Thessalonians in so many ways. 
on the basis of the Thessalonians' peace with God through the Lord of peace, they could have peace facing conflict and unrest in other areas of their lives. And let's remember that they had lots of conflict and unrest in their church. They had conflict with the secular authorities of the city who had run Paul out of town and extorted money from a, a Christian in their town named Jason. Paul is praying for peace in that situation. They had conflict and unrest within their church. Remember that in chapter 2 of this letter, Paul told them not to be alarmed and unsettled by the false teaching about the day of the Lord that had crept into their congregation. And let me just say this uh, about, about that situation that Paul was perhaps thinking about in terms of peace. Um, let me say this about teaching concerning the last days. Teaching about the last days ought to be characterized by peace, comfort, and assurance for Christians. Teaching about the last days ought to set you at peace. If you are a Christian and you encounter teaching about Jesus' return and you are unsettled, alarmed, and left without peace by that teaching, I would hazard to guess that the teaching that you are hearing might not be biblical. Whenever the New Testament writers address the subject of the last things in Jesus' return, their aim is almost always to comfort Christians and to give them peace about the future. Paul gave them the theological framework for having peace, and he prayed for peace. He appealed to the only one who could give them peace. There's another reason why this prayer for peace was so appropriate for the Thessalonians. They were experiencing conflict and unrest in their congregation by those who were idling and being busybodies. We thought about this last week. If you remember from our study last week, we learned that being idle and being a busybody amounted to meddling and interfering. That alone would cause conflict in a church. But Paul has also told the faithful brothers and sisters of that church to warn the slothful, to warn the idlers. Now let's just be honest about our own hearts for a moment. Often when we are warned and corrected by another brother or sister in Christ, our first reaction is not always one of humility. We don't always say right away, well, thank you for that. No, we, uh, and we don't mean it <laughs> if we do. Um, Paul's instruction to warn the slothful um, almost certainly might have initially churned up some conflict. Even though their ultimate goal, the ultimate goal of that warning was actually to seek peace in the church. This prayer for peace was appropriate given the unruly and disorderly conduct that marked the lives of the idle and slothful. And, and reminding the slothful that Jesus was the Lord of peace ought to remind them that their lives are to be an imitation of the Lord Jesus' life, a life marked by peace. Perhaps a final reason for why this prayer was appropriate for Paul to pray was, was this. To one degree or another, our lives will, until Jesus returns, be marked by conflict and unrest at some level. We live in a fallen world. We are, are finite and fallen human beings. Fighting or disturbing the peace is sadly one of our first instincts. Therefore, we should expect that there will be some measure of a need for peace at all times and in every way in our lives. We can have peace even when we face difficult things in our life. Peace is more than the absence of conflict 
or unrest, for it is a settled certainty that the Lord of peace himself is Lord. And that our peace, that, that our Lord of peace is with us. And this ties into what I, I mentioned earlier. We see it at the last part of Paul's prayer there in verse 16. He said, the Lord of peace be with you all. He prayed that the Lord would even be with the slothful. Jesus, he promised this to his disciples, that he'd be with them. When he ascended into heaven, he promised his disciples in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Lord Jesus is with us now by the power of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in our hearts. The Lord of peace dwells in our hearts. He is the Lord of peace. He's the Lord of all things. And if he is the Lord of all things, then we know at all times and in every way he is in control. For he is the one who can stand up in the midst of a raging storm and say to the winds and the waves, peace, be still. We need not fear though the earth give way and though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though the nations rage and the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. And one day he will as Psalm 46 goes on to say, make wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. In other words, when Jesus returns, perfect peace will then be found. There is no need for us to be restless in the midst of unrest. The Lord of peace is still Lord. He is pleased to generously give us the gift of peace in himself. Is your heart at peace? Even in conflict and unrest, what, what disturbs the peace in your heart? What, what are you fearful or anxious about? In what circumstances do you acutely feel the need for peace? Some of you may need peace when facing the morning traffic, but let's be honest, a slow-moving parking lot is, is not really all that much to deal with. There are things that trouble us far more deeply than traffic. Some of us are not at all at peace about the kind of world our children will grow up in. We're worried about what they might be taught in school or about what kinds of dangers await them on the internet. Some of us are, are not at peace with our own mortality. Some of us are not at peace with where we are in our career path. Some of us are, are, are not at peace with our financial circumstances or even our social, circle, social circles, our friends or our, our marital status. And, and can you believe that Jesus would say what he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 and 27? The Lord Jesus, the Lord of peace, says to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about your life, your very life, about what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? We might think to ourselves, come on, Jesus, how about a little compassion? Don't be worried about your life. Don't be anxious about anything. But perhaps the Lord of peace is pointing out 
to us is a part of our problem. Perhaps part of our fear, anxiety, and concern is that we're not in control. You know, as I think back on that night, I wasn't sleeping very well. That was what, I couldn't fix it, right? I couldn't do anything about it. I'm not Lord. But He is. Perhaps this is what the Lord calls us to remember. When the peace is disturbed in your heart, consider what your heart's showing you. Consider that you may have switched water sources. And that especially in the time of drought, your roots need to go down and draw on the one out of whom flows rivers of living water. Remember the one who is the Lord of peace, that he gives the gift of peace that you need. And remember that he is Lord. And remember, let me encourage you to remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 14, verses 27 to 28. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You know, while on the one hand, uh, those words from Jesus were a tender farewell to his disciples, commonly spoken in the first century. On the other hand, this was a promise that the Lord of peace spoke to his disciples. Jesus is leaving them with peace, an inheritance that cannot be taken away. This is the gift that he gives to them. And it is quantitatively and qualitatively different than the kind of peace that the world gives. You're not going to find peace in this world through the world. You will find peace in this world only through Jesus Christ. The world can only offer a peace that is temporary and a peace that is secured and maintained by fallen creatures at best. The peace that the world offers is fragile. Jesus, however gives a peace that cannot be broken because he is the Lord of peace. Well, having considered the gift of peace, let's turn now and consider our second point, the genuine greeting. The genuine greeting. This is what we find in verse 17. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17. Read verse 17 there. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Now, just a few brief reflections here will do. Paul wrote his letters through a scribe or through an amanuensis, as they're sometimes called in biblical scholarship. This is a person uh, who, who wrote down Paul's letter while he kind of dictated it. We don't know for certain who Paul's amanuensis was uh, for this letter, for this particular letter, but it doesn't, doesn't really matter a great deal. Um, apparently, at some point in each of Paul's letters, it was his custom to take the pen and kind of write a few words for himself to his recipients. This was so that they would know that this letter was from him. In other words, so that they would know it was an authentic, a genuine Pauline letter. Sometimes Paul actually drew attention to his signature, his writing, like he does here. Paul drew attention to his own handwriting in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 21, Galatians 6.11, Colossians 4.18, Philemon 1.19. And, and we don't know what made Paul's handwriting uh, distinct. Um, but I suspect that his, his readers would have recognized it when they saw it. Uh, we, we, we may have kind of a glimpse of that when Paul said in Galatians 6.11, see with what large letters I write. I mean, maybe that was Paul showing his hand. Um, but whatever the case may be, his readers would have, would have known, oh, that, that's Paul's handwriting, I've seen that before. 
But practically speaking, what difference does this make? Well, if you, if you were to flip back a little ways in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you look at verse 2, you would see that Paul disassociates and distances himself from a spirit, a spoken word, or a letter that seemed to have been from him. It's possible that the Thessalonians had received a false letter, a letter claiming to be from Paul. It would have been a pseudonymous letter, which simply means it was written under a false name. Somebody else wrote it. The Thessalonians should have recognized that it wasn't from Paul because it didn't at any point bear the genuine mark of his handwriting. Every one of Paul's letters, he tells us here, bore his handwriting at some point. Now, having seen Paul's first letter and this second letter, the Thessalonians could go back and discard that false letter and all of the false teaching that went along with it, for it didn't have his distinctive mark. That, in and of itself, would have gone a long way to contribute to the peace that was needed in their church. This also helps to assure us today that the church received and took as authoritative only genuine letters from the Apostle Paul. Paul was divinely and personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to communicate the truth about Jesus. He told us that Jesus is the Lord of peace. And in verse 18, he tells us something else about Jesus too. That he's the source of grace. So let's turn now and consider our third point, the grace of Jesus. Uh, read verse 18, last verse of this letter. Paul writes, The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Now, I kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, but if you were to flip back to the very beginning of this letter, you would see that Paul began by sending his greetings to the congregation, saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the second verse of the letter. Having considered the subject of peace in verse 16, and circling back to the subject of grace in verse 18, we can see that Paul's conclusion is a wonderful bookend. This uh, is a benediction, and a benediction is, is part blessing. It's part prayer, part comfort, part encouragement. This is a benediction that we actually use here in this church from time to time to conclude our services with. And I want us to unpack this benediction. What is it that Paul wants to be with all of the Thessalonians? Notice that Paul wanted something to be with all of the Thessalonians. Just like he wanted the Lord to be with all of the Thessalonians in verse 16... So now he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And let me just go ahead and tell you here that I think those two statements, the Lord of peace be with you all, oh, sorry, the Lord be with you all, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, I think those statements are virtually synonymous. The, uh, the statement in verse 18 concerning the grace of Jesus simply brings out the fuller meaning of verse 16, I think. What Paul wants is not simply something to be with the Thessalonians but someone. I am persuaded that grace is only grace in its connection with Jesus Christ. Grace is nothing other than God's unmerited favor. Grace is God's undeserved favor. We deserve hell. But because of Jesus, we become sons and daughters of God. As sons and daughters of the Most High God, we are entitled to and ensured that we will receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. But how? How is that favor of God received? It is received only through our faith union with Jesus Christ. 
When we place our faith in Jesus, believing that He is our Savior, that He he lived and died and rose again from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins, our lives are hidden in Christ. We become God's beloved sons and daughters only through our faith in the one whom the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, that becomes God's pronouncement of favor over us as well. Because of what He has done. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, that blessing becomes ours. And that is what Paul wants this Son and Lord. Paul wants this Son and Lord to be with us. And this reminds me of what we read about in John's Gospel. In John chapter 1 verse 14 where we read about Jesus' incarnation. John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what John is communicating there is that God made His presence fully and personally known in Jesus. God dwelt among men in a manner that was more intensely personal than anything we had ever seen before in the Bible. And then if that were not enough, John said this two verses later, And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. It was only from the fullness of Jesus Christ that we can receive God's unmerited favor. It is only through Jesus that grace exists. And apart from Jesus, there is no grace. There is no favor with God. Paul wanted the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with his brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. He wanted the grace of Jesus to subdue, to capture, and rule their hearts. They needed to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, to go and live with the grace of the Lord Jesus. You see, the grace of the Lord Jesus is not just for your salvation. It's also for your sanctification. It is through grace that we are forgiven, and it is through grace that we are forged increasingly into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It is, grace is both an endowment of God's favor through Jesus and it is an empowerment to live like Jesus. Grace not only transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son but it also transforms us so that we live in love like Jesus. Isn't that what the Thessalonians needed? Isn't that what you need? Isn't that what we as a church need? Think about praying this for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about praying this prayer for them. This is not a throwaway prayer. When you you pray, Heavenly Father, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with Mike today. Do you know what you're praying for me? You're praying that I would know and remember all that Jesus has done for me. And you're praying that I would live in light of that knowledge. Please pray that for me. I pray that for you. Let's pray this for one another. And when we encourage one another to be gracious... You need to be gracious. We're encouraging each other to embody the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, to display His very character. So, you know, uh, when you receive a nasty email from a friend, maybe it's only me who gets those, but if you receive a nasty email from a friend and you ask a brother or sister in Christ, you know, how should I respond to this email? And they say, yeah, make sure you respond graciously. Do you know what they're saying? They're saying, make sure you respond like Jesus. He was full of grace and truth. 
Even our gracious responses aim at another person's salvation and or sanctification. Or they aim at our sanctification. Where we humble ourselves and repent of how we've not been gracious. When we sin and we ask ourselves, how does the grace, how does the grace of Jesus speak to this moment? Do you know what the answer is? The answer is this. Christian, you are forgiven through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus forbids you to return to that sin. This obviously does not mean that we're going to be without sin in this life. It doesn't mean we're going to be free from sin. Sadly, we will continue uh, to sin. It will mark our lives until the Lord Jesus calls us home to glory. But it does mean that because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, because He, he is with us, we will make every effort to leave sin behind and move forward in grace. We may not go on sinning so that grace may increase. With respect to our sanctification, grace is not permissive, but prohibitive and powerful. By the grace of Jesus, we can resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. Because we have been pardoned, we must pursue purity. Because of our union with Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus forgives us of our sin and forbids us from continuing in sin. And this is precisely the orientation that we need each and every day. Because we need Him by Spirit each and every day. Just like we need the Lord of peace to be with us at all times and in every way, in every circumstance. We need the grace of Jesus in every circumstance. We need Him. And the good news is, is that by faith we have Him. By the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We have the Lord of peace. We have the grace of Jesus. We should conclude. This morning we have considered that Jesus is the Lord of peace who is pleased to generously give peace, give us peace with God and peace in this life. He will bring us to glory. Every trial that we will meet will come to an end. But peace will not. Peace will never end because the Lord of peace himself has no end. Jesus gives us this assurance in the midst of anxiety. We who live in peace with God do so because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the source of grace and peace. And may we draw and depend upon him whether our Lord leads us through droughts or downpours. Let's pray together.